Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 35, Induction. Induction of labour. This is what I'm talking about today sometimes known and abbreviated to IOL. This is a very important episode. There are rising induction rates across the country. Induction rates are standing at about 32% nationally in the UK. This represents a rapid increase during my career. It was about 18, possibly 20% when I started it's an important issue. Does it reflect increasing medicalisation of the normal process of birth? And what are the consequences of pretty much a third of women having an induction of labour? I was thinking about doing this episode and then a student midwife, Hayley, who listens to this podcast, specifically requested it. So with thanks to Hayley for prompting this episode, here are my thoughts on induction. I'm going to discuss how does labour normally start? Do we understand it? And what are we trying to mimic? Then I'm going to talk about why do we see induction as the answer in so many clinical situations? I hope you're going to find this an interesting and thought-provoking episode. Whether you're a health professional looking after women undergoing induction of labour or whether you're a woman considering induction of labour yourself. Let's start with how is labour initiated? This is the first thing we need to understand. Well, I say that, but actually the truth is we don't know the answer. The situation is that not only is the baby maturing, but so is the womb, the uterus and the cervix, the neck of the womb. There are changes in both composition and sensitivity to substances. The initiation of labour is very complex. There are multiple hormones and biochemical substances involved from both the mother and the baby. So much so that when I open my postgraduate textbook to give myself a quick refresher, I find more than 60 substances listed as being important in the initiation of labour. Of the many, many substances, two, prostaglandins and oxytocin are the most important. And I'm not going to attempt a biology lesson here. But to summarise, some sort of hormonal change in the baby appears to activate a cascade of interactions within the mother. And these two types of substance, prostaglandins and oxytocin, are the result. 
And this makes sense because these are what we commonly use in induction of labour. To go into a little more detail, there are two main types of prostaglandins within the womb and the membranes around the baby. PGF2-alpha causes the womb to contract, whereas PGE2 is more important in cervical ripening. Oxytocin, a hormone, also causes the womb muscle to contract with an increasing concentration of receptors in the muscle as labour progresses. And you'll see that this becomes important when we're talking about how to induce labour. So if that's what we're trying to mimic, how do we go about it? The National Guidance recommends prior to formal induction, we should perform a sweep. This sounds very unscientific, but actually what it involves is with our fingers, gently running our fingers round the membranes if the cervix is open, which may help release the woman's own natural prostaglandins. And there is good evidence that if a woman is ready, that this may cause some women to go into labour and leave some women less likely to need an induction a week later. The first step of a formal induction is to ripen and soften the cervix. Therefore, going back to what I mentioned earlier, using PGE2, a prostaglandin that softens and ripens the cervix, is usually the starting point. This is usually used as a pessary inserted into the vagina close to the neck of the womb. This may or may not start contractions the woman may experience very little. She might go into labour from this alone, but more commonly, we're aiming for the cervix to soften and thin and start to open up. In last week's episode, Vaginal Examinations, I talked about the Bishop's score. And we can use the Bishop's score to monitor how is the cervix changing in response to the prostaglandins we're giving. Once the cervix is sufficiently open, then the next step is usually to break the waters. For some women who've had a baby before, this may stimulate sufficient contractions to start, so we'll often get a woman to walk around for a few hours after breaking her waters before we take any further action. If the contractions don't start, then we start syntocinon. This is synthetic oxytocin, the hormone that a mother will normally produce herself if she goes into labour naturally. We start off at low doses and gradually increase the syntocinon, titrating it to aim to get contractions, usually three to four in 10 minutes, lasting 60 to 90 seconds each. As the woman gets into established labour, often the syntocinon can be turned off or reduced. And this is in part due to production of her natural oxytocin and also in part because her womb becomes more sensitive to its effects. So that is what we're talking about when we're talking about induction of labour. A series of interventions to try and nudge the woman's body into labour. And the success of this will depend how ready or not she is when we start. If she's nearly ready for labour naturally anyway, then it'd be much more likely that our induction process will be successful. 
Whereas if her body is really not ready at all, then it will be much more difficult for us to persuade it to get into labour. Or we may not be successful at all. And this may end up with what's termed a failed induction. Back to that horrible failure language that I mentioned in my language podcast. So given the stakes are quite high and we're trying to make a woman's body do something that potentially she and her baby are not ready for, why is induction so common? In some ways, it's an incredibly blunt tool. Many complications for mum and baby are treated with induction simply because by shortening the duration of the pregnancy, we're reducing the risk. I'm going to take a couple of examples. To start off, let's think about preeclampsia. Once diagnosed, we're uncertain how rapidly the illness will progress because there's wide variation. Some women will deteriorate rapidly, others much more slowly. The only thing we know with certainty is that the longer the duration of the pregnancy after we've diagnosed it, the more chance of deterioration. Some of that deterioration will also fall into the postnatal period after the baby's born. So starting and trying to get ahead before a woman deteriorates significantly seems like a good plan. In obstetrics, we're always trying to balance the welfare of two different patients simultaneously, the mother and the baby. When a mother is adversely affected by continuing the pregnancy, the choices at 28 weeks and 38 weeks are very different, as I discussed in my episode on dates. The inconvenience of an induced labour has to be weighed up against the risks of the continuing pregnancy. So for many of the complications we treat, it's about reaching a threshold where we believe the benefit of continuing pregnancy is lower than the risk of continuing to either mother or baby. If we turn now to the baby, the main balance is between the developmental benefits of fetal maturation and the risks of stillbirth. Stillbirth rates gradually increase from about 32 weeks gestation and increase exponentially, that is rapidly, from 37 weeks. That makes sense in that if we have a growth-restricted baby that seems like it's struggling to grow to its full potential on the inside in the womb, we make the assumption that it'll do better if it's born and starts to feed. Obviously, once any baby is born, the risk of stillbirth is removed completely. It becomes zero. But what are the risks once that baby is born? Do they remain risks? Some studies have attempted to look at this by looking at infant death to ensure that this holds true and that we're not simply replacing stillbirth with infant death. And these studies do seem to show that once we're beyond 38 weeks, the overall result is a reduction in mortality. So that's obviously a good thing. If there's an obvious growth-restricted baby, ending the pregnancy makes sense. So the reason it gets more complicated is how do we pick up those babies that are struggling and that would benefit? Because if we take this argument, we could now say as doctors, we'll offer induction to all women 38 weeks and over. What's the downside? 
Traditionally, we've thought the downside would be an increase in intervention for women, let's say an increase in caesarean section rates. Paradoxically, though, some more recent studies have suggested that this isn't true. In fact, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which I've put a link to in the programme notes, said that induction reduced the caesarean section rate. You may have to register to look at this article, but I do recommend it because it's completely free to register. And if you do, there's a very nice two-minute video that summarises the key findings. So now we're faced with a national aim to improve perinatal outcomes, reduce stillbirths, reduce neonatal deaths, and an endeavour by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, Each Baby Counts, to do the same. With the idea that induction doesn't worsen the clinical outcomes for women, it's inevitable perhaps that as doctors our threshold for induction might be reducing. When we're faced with a woman who says her baby's movements are reduced and she's 39 weeks, the plan is obvious. Induction. But for me, I'm a doctor interested in women's experiences. So yes, of course, the clinical outcomes are important. But how did this woman view the experience? For me, this is where the whole thing falls apart. Application of data is one thing. Personal experience is quite another. Planning this episode, I came across an interesting Royal College of Midwives paper on induction. It was written recently in 2020 in response to the COVID pandemic. It talks about the evidence for and against induction, but points out that there's considerable increased length of hospital stay. And in this context, they were actually thinking at about COVID exposure. But the reason I mention this is the reality of induction in many maternity units is that it's a very long drawn out process and often a quite negative experience for women. This is so much the case that at the British Intrapartum Care Society conference last November there was a whole workshop on how to solve the problem of induction where clinicians could come together and try and discuss strategies of trying to improve the experience of women that are being induced. To give you an example, the problem goes something like this. A couple are told that for X reason, concern about either mother or baby, an induction is recommended. They might be told this is to reduce stillbirth, or they might be told that this is to reduce complications for the mother. Most couples will accept they don't want risks for either. They definitely don't want to take any risks for their baby. They want to do what's safe. Safety is their number one priority. So the woman's admitted to hospital. She may spend one or two days on the antenatal ward having prostaglandin pessaries. This can be frustrating. She'll have a series of checks to make sure she and baby are doing okay but on the whole, it'll be quite tedious. She's likely to be separated from her partner. She's on her own, experiencing pain and worrying about when her baby will arrive. Then, joy. She's told she's ready for labour ward, the next step. 
Then there's likely to be a wait. She's waiting for a bed on the labour ward and a midwife to provide one-to-one care. She may well be told she's first on the list to go round. But despite this, she may still have a long wait. Perhaps a day. At worst, possibly two. As she's overtaken by women coming in in established labour. She's then in the confusing situation of being told she needs an induction because we're worried about her or her baby. But now we're contradicting ourselves and saying she needs to wait, that she is safe and that other women need our attention above her. Finally, she gets to the labour ward. Waters are broken and a hormone drip started. So now we have a woman who may have spent a frustrating four or five days in hospital before she's even got into labour, before having her baby. Much of this will have been a series of frustrating events, pain on and off, less support, as there's not one-to-one care on the antenatal ward, however caring we are, perhaps some negative comments being told she's not ready, a series of vaginal examinations, almost like tests that she's set up to fail or pass, as it were. And it's not surprising, she's exhausted physically and stressed psychologically before she's even got into labour. So what are we going to do about this? A lot of hospitals, my own included, are looking at mechanical methods of induction. This has the benefit of not using prostaglandins. You put in something like a balloon into the cervix that you blow up and that mechanically starts to open the cervix and release prostaglandins. Or you put in a series of rods which swell up and then also mechanically increase the dilatation of the cervix and release prostaglandins. This has been shown to cut the time that the woman is waiting to potentially have her waters broken and move to the next step and also can be potentially done as an outpatient. Some hospitals are also using prostaglandin pessaries as an outpatient so that the woman isn't sitting in a hospital bed for all that time. These are new ideas. They're very welcomed. They may improve the experience for women but they're not looking at the root of the problem. The root being, is the induction actually necessary in the first place? One of the questions Hayley asked me to address in this podcast is, can women give informed consent for induction? And this is where we come to today's zesty bit. For the zesty bit, I want you to think, is the induction absolutely necessary? Have we given the woman all her options? Have we explained the alternative strategies we might use to monitor her and make sure her baby and she are safe? And most importantly, have we given her time to think? Think if this is what she really wants. Give her time to take the decision. And before we do that, or before we suggest induction, is she ready? Have we examined her? 
So not only can we palpate and check that the baby's head is nicely engaged, but we can offer her a vaginal examination. Remember that Bishop score from last week's episode. Not only can we then do a membrane sweep, but we can assess how ready she is, how long an induction might take, how she might respond to it. Is it likely to be successful? How ready is she? If she's not ready at all, then actually waiting and doing some monitoring of her and her baby may well be preferable to trying to embark on an induction that is likely to be unsuccessful. If, however, she's very ready and you can see that she may be on the brink of going into labour naturally, a sweep might just tip the balance for her and you might be able to do something less invasive. Don't forget, induction immediately removes some important choices from women about place of birth. And whilst this might seem a nicety, if she was considering home birth or birth on the midwifery-led unit, don't forget that there are health benefits and good evidence of less intervention in those settings. So when you're introducing induction, you're not only introducing the induction itself, you're introducing birth on the obstetric-led unit with all the complications and problems that we know could ensue. So we start out by meaning well. We're trying to do the least risky thing for a mother and baby. And then by doing that, if we do that with too low a threshold for induction, as our blunt tool to treat problems, we end up with complications and a poor experience for the woman. All these studies about induction can't help but make me feel we're taking away women's confidence in birth, the ability of their body to initiate labour when they and their baby are ready, the ability to go with their natural hormones, their natural instincts in what is, after all, a natural physiological process. To disrupt that and suggest induction we need to be absolutely certain that we understand what we're doing and that the woman understands what the impact will be. Often when I see women in my birth options clinic who've perhaps had a negative birth experience, induction is often the root cause. And when I talk to them about induction, that's the one outcome they won't contemplate doing again. So think. When you're thinking about induction, give the woman time to think. Don't have too low a threshold to intervene. Think, are there alternative options? Let's not let induction get out of hand. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of The Obs Pod. Feel free to contact me on Twitter at FWMaternity or at The Obs Pod to ask me questions, give me topics for future episodes or let me know what you think. It's absolutely fantastic when you get in touch. 
I really enjoy reading your comments. As usual, I've tried to include in the programme notes some extra reading about this particular topic, both for professionals working in maternity care and for pregnant women using services. I'd like to reassure you that although I'm talking about my experiences working in maternity care, I take confidentiality very seriously and do not give any personal information about any of my patients. If you've enjoyed listening, I'd love you to recommend the OBSPOD to friends or colleagues. And please do leave me a review on whichever podcast directory you find my episodes. Many thanks for listening.